I am grateful for the chance to continue this series on the Apostles' Creed. Those of you who are here last year, remember we introduced the idea of belief and then talked about God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. We come in this week to talk about two particular aspects of the Creed. Today, we're talking about the phrase, conceived by the Holy Spirit, and we'll spend some time thinking about what that means. And then on Wednesday, we'll talk about the phrase, born of the Virgin Mary. Now, those are both Christmas passages that we're going to be looking at, this, uh, this chapel and then next chapel. Um, Matthew chapter 1 is where we're going to begin, and this is a passage that we ordinarily just hear at Christmas time. But what I'm going to suggest to you today and Wednesday is that though these passages are passages that we ordinarily just visit around late November and December, that in fact these two phrases that we're going to be talking about in the Creed are highly relevant. In fact, I'm going to suggest that they are more relevant to you than the homework that you're tempted to study during these chapels. I understand you've got choices to make, and I'm glad you're here. And maybe something that I say to you will get through even though you are studying. But honestly, I think that what we're talking about in these chapels, as is true for the entirety of the creed, is highly relevant. I think what you believe to be true about God and God's redemptive plan are the most relevant facts, or among the most relevant facts at least, that are part of your life. They shape everything else. I hope I'll be able to convince you of that at the end of today's chapel, so that when we stand and recite the Apostles' Creed to conclude today's chapel, you can do so with a deeper sense that you're not just saying something that you have to say as a Christian, you're actually expressing the reality that exists in your own heart. Now, that's a tall order for a Monday morning, but we'll see what we can do. If you have your Bibles, either hard copy or digitized, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 1, and we'll be reading verses 18 through 25. I want you to be be noticing in this set of slides, and then when we look at the Luke passage, I want you to be noticing what the gospel writers, Matthew and Luke, say about this idea of the virgin birth, this idea that Jesus Christ was born fully human and yet fully divine. This is what the virgin birth involves, that by some miracle, God produced Jesus fully human, 100% human, and 100% divine. This is what the virgin birth accomplishes. So pay attention as we're reading and you'll see it. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream And said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, would be the prophet Isaiah, chapter 7, verse 14. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Did you notice how many times it refers to the work of the Holy Spirit? This child that would be born, that is to say, born in a very human sense, as a human being, does not come about in an ordinary way. Matthew's very careful to point that out. Let's take a look at the Luke passage, which is the second major place where we find this, this understanding of the virgin birth, where we find it in the Gospels and, in fact, in the New Testament. It's also found in the Gospel of Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. So I'll give you a minute to turn there, and then we'll read that passage as well. And as before, pay attention to what the Gospel writer has to say about the virgin birth. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the six months of Elizabeth sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the, vir- the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Did you notice it in both passages? This interaction between the Holy Spirit and Mary was to produce a child. There's not sexual language involved. In fact, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you heard language of a theophany. A theophany is is a moment in the Old Testament where God's presence is manifested. There's some physical, tangible presence of God, whether Mount Sinai with with, uh, smoke and thunder and lightning and loud trumpets or the burning bush with a bush that's being burnt but not consumed. Those are theophanies, moments where God's presence is manifested. God's presence shows up, and yet they pass away. This particular miracle describes something like that in that there is theophany language, and yet this results in a physical child, a child that's every bit as human as you and me. So the virgin birth is describing that birth of Jesus, fully human, and yet at the same time, fully divine. I wish there was more that we could point out about the virgin birth as to how it takes place. We don't know. We have these phrases, from the Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit overshadows you. That's all we get. Doesn't stop people from speculating as to how this might have happened, and there's been all kinds of proposals in in vitro fertilization, parthenogenesis, but none of those things seem to fit the picture exactly. We're we're just left at a kind of, we know that it happened, but we're not exactly sure how. And I think this is what the Apostle Paul is saying. 
when he writes to Timothy, his son in the faith. And he describes in one other passage that intimates the virgin birth, he describes it as a mystery. Beyond all question, Paul writes, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh. Did you notice the language? He just appeared in the flesh. There was nine months of gestation, but in Paul's mind, this is so mysterious, he can only describe it this way. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Now, here we come to an interesting fact of history, because even though the early church could not explain how this happened, they hung on to this idea that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, fully human and fully divine. They hung on to this idea of the virgin birth of Christ as if it was the most important thing that they believed. They hung on to it with tenacity. Now, you can expect that the enemies of the church would target this point, right? Because this would appear to be a weak spot in Christianity. What? This virgin gives birth to a child? You've got to be kidding me, and you would be right. The Christianity's earliest enemies target this doctrine of the church, seeking to expose the weak points of Christianity. And what does the church do in response? This is where I, what I find so striking. Instead of surrendering this idea, I mean, after all, we don't know how it happened. It was some kind of you know, mystery. We don't know how it happened. Instead of surrendering the doctrine, they hang on to it. Even in the face of its apparent impossibility, they hang on to this idea that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, fully human and fully divine. Now, we could look in any number of places to see this tenacious death grip that they hold on this doctrine. I've just picked one author. His name is Ignatius. He's a bishop of the church at Antioch in the very early second century. So he dates to within 20 or 30 years at the most of the last book of the New Testament to be written. Ignatius writes a series of letters to several of the churches over which he has some responsibility. And I've just picked two of the letters. And you find in, in these two letters and, and many other places a very clear understanding of the virgin birth quite early in the history of the church. We'll look first at this quote that Ignatius has to the church at, the, uh, at Ephesus. For our God, Jesus the Christ, was conceived in the womb by Mary according to a dispensation of the seed of David, but also of the Holy Ghost. You hear that Luke language there. Ignatius pulls no punches. This, he insists, is what we believe. Listen to what he has to say to another one of his churches being fully persuaded as touching our Lord that he is truly of the race of David according to the flesh, but son of God by the divine will and power, truly born of a virgin. Now we could multiply those quotations again and again, but I thought it might be helpful just to give you one more quotation, this time not from one of the early church fathers, not from Ignatius, but from someone who actually denied the deity of Christ, from a relatively modern scholar from a previous century who actually denied the deity of Christ, but here's what he had to say about the early church and what they felt on this point. Adolf von Harnack. It is certain already in the middle of the second century and probably soon after its beginning, the birth of Jesus from the Holy Ghost and the Virgin Mary formed an established part of church tradition. Even a skeptic has to come to this conclusion. 
So far, what we've said is that the virgin birth describes the birth of Jesus fully human, fully divine by some miraculous means. We've said that in the face of withering criticism from outside the church, the church held on to this view with tenacity and insisted upon it. Which brings me to this conundrum. What happened? I grew up in a God-fearing, Bible-believing, evangelical church, and never once did I hear a sermon on the virgin birth. You don't want to know what's worse? I pastored for 10 years and never preached on the virgin birth. What happened? How did this doctrine, which the church was so tenaciously gripping and refusing to let go, has somehow disappeared from our view, except we mention it at Christmas time? Even as I was beginning to prepare to preach on the virgin birth, I must confess I had a nagging doubt in my mind. How important is this? I'm an ordained minister in the church. I pastored for 10 years. I teach Bible. A few years ago, when I'm starting to get ready this series on the Apostles' Creed, I'm asking myself this question. Is this really all that important? What happened? How do we go from a doctrine that the church holds tightly to one that I'm not? Is it really that important? So I began to ask myself, what, what is it? What, what is it about this doctrine that perhaps has caused people to maybe back away from it a little bit? There are several things that come to mind, but let me just mention a few. You notice that I haven't read many passages. Two. Two passages speak of the virgin birth. If we look closely, we may find two or three others which intimate that there is a virgin birth. And I wonder if one reason why we've relaxed our grip on this and maybe backed away from it a little bit is because we're not sure about it. I mean, after all, if it was that important, wouldn't we expect more of the New Testament writers to emphasize it? It's a fair question. Although I don't think we want to get in the practice of evaluating the significance of a doctrine based on the number of times it shows up in our Bibles. This would be a dangerous thing to do. This would be to weigh our doctrine by the words that are used to describe it. And I think if we would go very far down this road, we'd discover this isn't all that valid of an approach to describing significance. At least it wasn't an important way of determining significance for the early church. They said, few passages or many, we know this is true. I suspect that would be a good plan of attack for us as well, especially in light of the fact that in order to deny this, we would have to deny the veracity of Matthew and Luke, and that seems kind of problematic. Furthermore, we'd have to recognize that even though Paul and Peter and the other apostles don't spend a lot of time talking explicitly about the virgin birth, they assume it. And if we had time, we could talk about the passages. In fact, we did talk about some of those passages the last time I spoke on this, of how we know that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. So what the Gospel writers, Matthew and Luke, mention, all the New Testament writers emphasize. So I don't think just the limited number of passages is a reason to dismiss it. There's a second reason, though, which I suspect may have something to do with why people have relaxed their grip on it, it seems to have arisen from a misunderstanding of Isaiah 7. 
Word of explanation. Isaiah, when he wrote Isaiah 7, wrote in Hebrew. And when he wrote verse 14 of chapter 7, he did not write that the virgin will conceive. He wrote that an alama, a young woman, will conceive. Matthew, when he's using his Bible, is not using the Hebrew Bible. The early church did not use the Hebrew Bible. Very few Jews did. Instead, they used a translation into Greek known as the Septuagint. The Septuagint was prepared many years before the beginning of Christianity. It was prepared by Jews who wanted to communicate their Hebrew scriptures into Greek. And this Septuagint translator, when he translates Isaiah 7.14, he translates the word alama with the Greek word parthenos, the Greek word virgin. So that when Matthew opens his Bible, he does not read that the young woman will conceive. He reads that the virgin will conceive. Are you with me? Make sense so far? Now, some people have then assumed that if Matthew were reading this in Hebrew, he never would have come up with the virgin birth. It was, in fact, the mistranslation of Alama to Parthenos which triggered the misunderstanding which has given us Matthew's account. At least this is the way the argument goes. Therefore, now that we know what Isaiah actually said, we can set aside this misunderstanding as just a matter of Matthew's making a mistake. Well, I hope there is something inside you that's saying, but wait, is that right? Is that the right way we're supposed to think about this? I don't think so. First of all, you notice that Matthew didn't come to this conclusion because he saw it in Isaiah's gospel, even in the Greek translation. Matthew came to this conclusion because he knew it was true. And he found scripture to support what he knew to be true. He didn't invent the doctrine from the passage. He found the passage after he already knew the doctrine was true. That's the historical sequence of it. Furthermore, it's not a mistranslation at all. All right, bear with me. Every word in any language has a range of possible meanings. Several things it could possibly mean. You and I decide which meaning, the spokesperson, your your interlocutor, we decide which meaning they intend by the context in which we find ourselves. The translator of Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 7, when he came across that passage, he looked at the range of possible meanings that Alamah could have, and he noticed that virgin, Parthenos, was one of them. He happened to choose that one. Translators do this all the time. It's not a mistranslation of alama at all. It's one possible way this could be translated. So it's not even a mistranslation. So what I'm suggesting is this isn't a good reason to dismiss this view either. It's not a mistake that Matthew makes. God divinely superintends this process so that when Matthew opens his gospel, he finds confirmation for what he already knows to be true. Third, This isn't the only story about the gods having sex with women, right? Pagan myths are full of this idea, right? Hercules. Where's Hercules? He's out there somewhere. I know. I heard him singing on Saturday. Was that you? No. Okay. He's a son of the gods. Human mother, divine father. Look, we've got all kinds of stories like this. All the church did was to take one of those and clean it up. This is just a pagan myth in Christian clothes. Well, I don't think this is right either. 
Those who've studied the pagan myths and know this story tell me that these two are very different from one another. But let me just propose another way of reading the data. What if God, from the beginning of time, knows that he is going to incarnate himself as a human? Wouldn't it be just like God to start a rumor to that effect way before it happened? I mean, if you were God and you wanted to prepare people to understand the virgin birth when it happened, wouldn't it make sense that you'd plant some rumors to get people thinking along these lines so that when it finally happens, people say, I've heard about this before. This is it. This is the real thing. This is the reality that all those rumors were pointing to. I think this makes more sense of the evidence. You don't find rumors like this going on after the reality has arrived. At least that's what Chesterton tells us. So this is not just a Christianized version of a pagan myth. This is the reality toward which all those myths are pointing. Here's another reason I think that people have tended to lose their grip on this truth. They got a problem with miracles. And let's face it, it takes faith to believe this miracle. This is not the kind of thing that happens every day. It takes faith, and we'll talk about Mary's faith on Wednesday. It takes faith to believe this miracle. And some people say, no, 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 no. Miracles like this don't happen. Miracles like this can't happen. Therefore, this couldn't be true. Well, I got to tell you, I think it takes faith to believe in miracles, faith in God to be able to do something like this, but I honestly think it takes even more faith to believe that I have such a grasp of what God can and cannot do that I can tell him what he can't do. Amen. It takes faith to believe in a miracle. It takes more faith to believe God can't do a miracle. You cannot say what God can do. He's infinite. We're finite. We'd have to get out beyond him to figure out what he can't do and can do. And if you can get way out there, you got more faith in yourself than I have in you. Amen. Well, if you grant the possibility of the miraculous, then it seems to me that the virgin birth is certainly conceivable, no pun intended. <laughs> I, am, I am far more concerned, though, I am far more concerned about what's going on in this room with you and me. Because I doubt that there are many intrepid skeptics in this room who came into this room imagining that the virgin birth was just a Christianized version of pagan miracles. I doubt there are too many of us that came in here disbelieving in the virgin birth for that reason. I think we just forgot where we put it. I think from one Christmas to the next, it just got lost like some of those ornaments. I think we just said, And that's a more serious problem. Because as I, as I said at the beginning, the virgin birth is one of the most relevant facts in your day. And here's how. I think that the virgin birth is a sign. This is what Isaiah says. I'll give you a sign. And I think this virgin birth is a sign that points us in three different directions. 
all of which are very significant to how you go about your day, how you think about yourself, how you relate to God, how you relate to other people. The virgin birth is a sign. First of all, it's a sign that points us to God, to Christ's true nature. Second, it's a sign that points us to our true nature. And third, it's a sign that points us to our destiny. First, it's a sign that points us to Christ's true nature. Listen to what Matthew and Luke have to say about Christ. The Holy One to be born to you shall be called the Son of God. This is a sign. This virgin birth is a sign. It's God's way of pointing to this child in the manger to say he's not an ordinary human being. He is fully divine. Yes, Steve, got that. Do you? And if you have it, do you have it with the kind of grip that refuses to let it go? Because trust me, you're going to be asked to let that down. It's only going to get more and more of a challenge for you and for me to hold on to the full deity of Christ in this day and age. It's only going to get more challenging as we come across other religions, other ways of understanding, as we're pushed in the direction of tolerance, which I'm 100% in favor of, but the, the more we're pushed in this direction, the more we will be tempted to let down the deity of Christ as something that may not be as important as some other things. And friends, if we let down the deity of Christ, we let down the reason for Christianity. It's at the heart of Christianity to understand that Jesus is fully divine, that he's God with us. That's too important to just let go. And the virgin birth is our reminder. Twelve months of the year, it's our reminder. It points out that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God in the face of all temptations to the contrary, all challenges to the contrary. This is the kind of thing that you've got to hold on to. Jesus is fully God. the most important question you'll ever face. What are you going to do with Jesus? It's the most important question. Your whole destiny rests on this question. What will you do with Jesus? You see why it's so important to hang on to? The virgin birth is our reminder, not just once a year, but throughout the year. It's our reminder that Jesus Christ is fully God. The second thing that it points to is the nature of our humanity. Because when God chose to bring Jesus into the flesh, he honored our humanity. There's a funny thing going on here. You and I live in a culture where humanity, human nature, is honored in a way that it's never been honored before, in any culture, ever before. We have come to a recognition in our culture, and I think it's a good thing, We have come to a recognition in in our culture of the great significance of what it means to be human. That's the good news. The bad news is we have a warped understanding of what it means to be human. So we've elevated humanity to its rightful place as the image of God and the stewards of God's creation. And I say, hip, hip, hooray. But what we've put on the throne is the wrong thing. 
We've got only half a human up there. Every day, throughout our day, we are bombarded with the idea that what the most important thing about you and me as human beings is this right here, this right here, this immediate moment and this physical body that occupies it. The most important thing that you can do is to satisfy the desires of your physical body. The most important choices that you can make is what brings you happiness in this life. You're called to set aside everything else to pursue satisfaction. Any of this sound familiar? Every day, in every way, this is the impulse that you're getting. Satisfy your human nature. Problem is, it's only half the story. You and I are way, way, way more than this here right now. In fact, this here right now is just that compared to us. And the virgin birth is a sign. And it tells us that while human nature is significant, it is really meant to be understood as something more than the physical. Something more you, than what you gratify. Something more than what you satisfy. Because if that's all it was, then there really is no need for the virgin birth. The virgin birth came so that you and I could experience eternal life. We were meant to live forever. That's the rest of the story. And so by choosing to do what's satisfying us at this moment, we set in jeopardy the most important part of us, which is the eternal part of us. So what the virgin birth emphasizes is that this holy one to be born, there's the physical part, is the Son of God. We are meant to be in God's image, not just physical, but with an eternal soul. And the virgin birth reminds us how important that is. There's one more thing. It's not only a sign to his full nature, and it's not only a sign that we are more than just physical beings. The virgin birth is a sign for how God intends to bring us into fellowship with himself. To discover our true destiny as reconciled to God. Okay, let me explain. In order for Jesus to accomplish the work on the cross that he accomplished. In order for Jesus to bring us salvation. What has to be true? How is it that Jesus can bring us back to God? Two things have to be true. He has to be fully God. If he were not fully God, he would not have the capacity to reconcile us back to God because he had to be sinless. We had to have somebody that was dying without sin. The second thing that has to be true is he has to be fully human. So in order for Jesus to accomplish his work on the cross, he must be fully divine and fully human. And that's precisely what we find in the virgin birth. God sent Jesus through the womb of Mary so that you and I could experience reconciliation through Christ's work on the cross. And apart from that work on the cross, we've got no hope. You see what I mean about this being pretty relevant? This really matters. Our relationship with God depends on someone who stands between heaven and earth and can reconcile us to God. 
And that's what this is assigned to. So I'm suggesting this is pretty important stuff. Understanding who he is and who we are and how we get right with him. This is what the virgin birth is meant to point out to us. It's not just a Christmas story. It's not something we just trot out with the shepherds and the manger. It's something we hold on to every day. And so when we stand now and recite the Apostles' Creed, we're going to come to that phrase. It's just going to be a, come on, stand up. It's going to, it's going to be a brief phrase. But as you see it, remind yourself, this makes a lot of difference. Let's say it together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he arose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Father, you've done a great thing for us. Tighten our grip. Remind us that this matters. Remind us of who you really are. Remind us of who we really are. Remind us of what you truly accomplished on the cross. Help us to be people who take seriously our faith. We need it, and so does the world. Bless this day, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.